He told me the PowerPoint crashed right before church. So if any of these slides just come up in random order, just you, you fair warning. She, she rebuilt it in like five minutes before she raced back in here. So who knows? But uh, so now that we've gone through uh, the books of first and second Thessalonians, if you've been here with us, uh, we're ready to begin a whole new letter today from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Uh, the very next letter they wrote, actually, and if you were here last week, you heard me say that. Uh, that's the track, at least for now, that I'm going to be following is the chronological order of the letters that Paul wrote instead of the order that they appear in Scripture. Which, if you've already looked in your bulletin, there should be a chart right inside your bullet inside the front cover. Uh, you can take this home and check it out. Uh, if you've looked at the chart in your bulletin, you know it's going to be 1 Corinthians. So we're going to be reading 1 Corinthians uh, verses 1 through 31 this morning. And there, there's a lot here, so we're going to circle back to it again next week. But this is just going to be a kind of a high overview. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen for the voice of the Spirit. So Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. That you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Father God, the reading of your word this morning leaves bare the bankrupt logic of our human wisdom. And so we ask you to come now by your spirit and replace it with that pure message from above through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just by way of introduction, since we're jumping into a new letter today, uh, today's letter is named for the, the city of Corinth, where the church to whom it was written was located. And Corinth was and, and still is located in southern Greece in what was the Roman province of Acacia, about 45 miles west from Athens. Uh, and it was renowned as a, a city of wealth and culture, kind of seated at the, the north-south crossroads of the Roman Empire, where all of the, the foreign trade and domestic commerce of the empire passed through. And it was, by every ancient account, a place of beauty. It was actually it was a resort city, in fact, uh, and a prime location. But it also, like every city, had a very deep, dark underside as well, because with this whole influx of people traffic came a whole host of debauchery to the point eventually that even by pagan standards of its own time, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with moral depravity. And, and it all centered, it centered on the, the most prominent edifice on the Acropolis there, which was a temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, where uh, some over 1,000 priests who were male and female prostitutes lived and worked and came down into the city in the evening to offer their services to both citizens and foreign visitors alike. Now, as far as the church there, uh, the church in Corinth was founded by Paul on his missionary journey in Acts 18.1, where you can go back and look at that. Where, as usual, his ministry began in the synagogue. And he was assisted there by two early believers you can read about back there, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, with whom he lived for a while and who were fellow tradesmen with him. And then soon after, Silas and Timothy joined them. And Paul began preaching even more intently in the synagogue. But when most of the, the Jews resisted the gospel, uh, he left the synagogue, but not before uh, Christmas, the leader there and his family and many other Corinthians were converted. And then after kind of ministering around the city for over a year and a half, uh, Paul was brought before the Roman tribunal by some of the Jewish leaders. But because the charges that they brought were strictly religious and not civil, uh, the proconsul there, Gallium, dismissed the charges. But then shortly after, Paul took Priscilla and Aquila with him to Ephesus from where he wrote what we just read this morning. He wrote this. I uh, said, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And if you've looked back at the book of Acts lately, if you've read it lately, you know Sosthenes uh, was one of the rulers of the synagogue in Corinth, and he had been converted evidently 
during that very difficult time there. And so now he's you know, together with Paul in Ephesus writing back and saying to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And right away, and you might not have picked this up, but if you notice, Paul starts out this letter with an emphasis on his apostleship, right? He says very clearly, Paul called by God, by the will of God to be an apostle, which became necessary because uh, it turns out certain members of the Corinthian church evidently were ready to challenge that fact since he had not been one of the original 12 disciples. And because he had persecuted the church so violently, and so his apostleship was called into question. Uh, with some even possibly wondering if he might not be a false apostle. And so Paul had to defend his credentials right at the outset. And then he sandwiches that claim at the close of that same verse where he stresses it was the Lord Jesus who had delivered that call on the road to Damascus. And the reason I tell you this uh, is this is really a powerful opening punch by Paul as, as he metaphorically enters the ring to go one-on-one -on -one with the people and their misconceptions of the gospel who were leading the Corinthian church astray. And it's proof that he's not playing around. He's taking this all very seriously. And amazingly, on top of that, he also manages to pull us into the ring as well, even from a distance of over 2,000 years, by saying that his words were meant not only for the church in Corinth, but for those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which would surely include us this morning, right? Amen. Saying it's both their Lord and, and ours. Which really seems to be the biggest issue that the Corinthians somehow missed. And, and you're going to see this as the letter progresses over the next few weeks. And how in every case, the apostle calls them back to that fact, explaining to them, that they were suffering divisions for one thing because they had lost sight of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That they were falling into immorality because they had forgotten that the members of their body were also members of Christ. And they were getting involved in lawsuits with other believers because they failed to see that Jesus was the judge of the inmost motives of the heart. And that they were having quarrels back and forth among each other. Because they had forgotten that other believers were members of the body and therefore they were members one of another. And so basically what he's doing is he's asking them, how is it possible for you to fall into that kind of error when you've got everything going for you? That's why he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. And right off the bat, so then he says... Your entrance into the Christian faith was rock solid. It was totally conventional. You were saved by grace. These people have been heathens and now they were born again by having received the grace of God and his unmerited gift of favor. And the point being that that fact should have made them a whole lot more humble than it did. Because church, if you're saved by grace, then the work is God and not ours, right? right? As Romans 4 says now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Which means two things. First, it means God justifies the ungodly, not people who are already good and have somehow elicited a gracious response from God. 
but rather that he justifies those that don't deserve it. And I'm one of them. Amen. And second, that God justifies people who receive salvation by faith, not people who have made their best effort. Because, again, if they are justified in any part based on what they do, then they're receiving wages and not a gift. And grace is a gift. Right? If grace is based on works to any degree, it's not grace. But, you know, that's the other interesting thing that we see in this letter. There's no mention here of a problem with matters of legalism. These folks Paul's writing to are not all caught up with wrong rituals like you have in the letter to the Colossians. And they're not involved with disputes over Old Testament Jewish laws or ceremonies like you get flavors of in Galatians and Philippians. Instead, here in Corinth, the problem was their license. The problem was license because they had accepted the grace of God to such a degree. They didn't think it made any difference now how they behaved. And that's what was causing the problem. So what they had done was they had intellectually understood a lot of right doctrine. Right? There's no questions here raised in this letter on like the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or substitutionary atonement or the incarnation of Jesus. Uh, they, they clearly understood that they had been set free from their sins by the free grace gift through Jesus. So they had the right start. But they've gotten off track. And Paul's saying it shouldn't be that way. You guys know better. And Paul doesn't let up here. He keeps the pressure on because he goes on to say, hey, guys, not only did you get the right start, but you had gotten all the right equipment. And he says, as we read, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in what? Any gift. You're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's almost as if like he's talking to a dream team of athletes in the locker room of a brand new stadium surrounded by unlimited resources and state-of-the-art training facilities. And he's saying, hey, guys, what's the deal? How is it? Every time you go out on the field, you lose. What more do you need? What more do you need? And now here's where the message starts to get a little uncomfortable, especially for us. Because here's the Apostle Paul saying to these Corinthians 2000 years ago, what more do you need to live out the Christian life correctly? And they had a whole lot less than we do. So what's our excuse? They didn't have the New Testament as we have it. It wasn't written yet. I mean, they did have among them New Testament prophets and apostles who were preaching and teaching the same truth that we have. But. We've got the benefit of the whole thing right here. So what's our excuse? Right. How is it that there are professed believers who can rattle off the stats of multiple, let's say, college sports teams? They couldn't find first Corinthians in the Bible on their first try if their salvation depended on it. Right. So the truth is, some of these Corinthian believers that Paul was chastising are to come out a whole lot better on Judgment Day than perhaps some sitting here today. Because we have no excuse. We have the full counsel of God's word right here at our fingertips. And even more so today, if you've got a phone in your pocket with Bible apps, with phones that can link us to concordances and word studies and commentaries, the likes of which would have taken up whole libraries in the ancient world. And you've got it tucked in your pocket. What more do you need? And better question yet, why aren't you using it? 
And the answer, both for the Corinthians and for us, sometimes comes down to pride. Pride and self-reliance. That we most often prefer our own opinions and our own plans to those of God. Hey, we, hey, we might turn to in a pinch. Or we get to the end of our rope. And things don't maybe work out the way we'd like or the way we'd hoped. But having skipped the whole path of seeking his will first before we started out on our own. And one of the side effects of that pride, Paul is saying, and short-sightedness, were those divisions that were cropping up in the church that Paul wrote about. With some saying, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Because those Corinthians had such a wealth of Christian knowledge and they had gotten so lazy in applying it. Now they were using it to beat each other up with instead. Arguing over semantics and over different teachers' approaches to different issues. That they had lost the forest for the trees, or I guess I should say they lost Christ in the midst of the church. And you don't really see this happening a whole lot in local church settings anymore because pastors and, and elders normally nip that kind of thing in the bud pretty quickly. But where you see it play out nowadays is in the fan-like devotion to the popular evangelical teachers of the day. Hey, I'll, I'll be the first to admit I got my favorites, right? I have, I have men that I love and I respect. They're heroes of mine. But brothers and sisters, we can't ever forget that none of them are ever too big to fall if they stray from the truth of the gospel. Amen. Right? And so regardless of how famous or how large the church or how immense the media following, it is only safe to follow any teacher, including me, as far as they are following Christ and no further. Amen. Right? It is only safe to follow any teacher so far as they follow Christ and no further. And that's why we as pastors can't get enamored by being accepted by the cool kids in the culture. And in the academy and in the world of media. And, and we can't think that we can attract people to the church and to faith in Christ by trying to be like the world. Because as we just read this morning, the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Go back to that sports metaphor, right? So let's say if you were, let's say you're assembling a group of athletes to form into an elite team, right? And, and some of the criteria you might use would be like a person's recognized abilities and their, say their league status or their history of success. But church, the world's measure of success is different from God's. That does, doesn't require intelligence or ability or power or status to become a believer. Instead, those who come to Christ are on his team, as we said, by grace through faith and not anything inherent in them. In fact, we just read God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what's low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And church, the Bible is clear that God's not going to give his glory to another, ever. Which makes Jesus' high priestly prayer all the more astounding, because in it, if you remember, Jesus prayed, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Because brothers and sisters, Christ was the only answer for those wayward Corinthians, and he is our only answer today. 
all the all the good theology and all the great resources and all the eloquent speakers and all the fine facilities can't make up for the absence of Christ in an assembly and even more for the absence of Christ in individual lives. Because he's the only answer to our broken relationship with God and folks outside of him, it is broken. God created Adam and Eve. They enjoyed perfect, unhindered fellowship with God. But Adam sinned by disobeying God and thereby bringing death into the world. And humanity's relationship with God was irretrievably fractured from our end. But praise God, he provided a temporary sin covering for Adam and Eve. And at the same time, he provided a greater redeemer who would defeat Satan and accomplish the reconciliation of those who would be the objects of God's mercy. And then that great redemptive narrative continues to reveal itself all throughout Old Testament scripture until we get to the New Testament era that displays without a doubt before the entire watching cosmos of angels and demons and men and nature that Jesus Christ is the promised redeemer as he steps onto the scene of history and declares unequivocally, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And church, whatever your problem is this morning, whatever your difficulty, whatever your sin, whatever your circumstance, Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer. So turn to him today. Repent and believe the gospel. Refuse the wisdom of this world and the temptation to follow your own heart and to go your own way. And instead, submit to the preaching of the cross as your only hope of redemption. And if you've already done that, I, I praise God for you. If you've already done that, then just don't stop there. You've got every opportunity in this church here and every resource here to grow in your Christian walk. So don't be satisfied any longer with the lowest common denominator faith that leaves you immature and unfit for service in the kingdom. Church, we have Christ and we have God's word. What more do you need? Amen. Father God, forgive us, I ask this morning, for leaving unused the manifold gifts that you've given us. And Father, we stand here today without excuse. But instead, Lord, send us out today recommitted to your word, to your great commission, and to the kingdom of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Come this morning, Father, and open hearts and change minds. If there's even one among us that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would be so real and so present, uh, that you would uh, just drop the scales from from their heart and mind and you would make them new today we ask call sheep into your kingdom and let your word go forward father because you promised us it won't return to you in vain but will accomplish all that your purpose too through christ our lord amen, amen. Would you please